The Sika Award, or the Society for the Encouragement of Art Award, is an award ultimately chosen by two San Francisco Museum of Modern Art curators and offered to four emerging Bay Area artists. It happens every two years, and this year, the winners were Tauba Auerbach, Trevor Paglin, Jordan Cantor, and Desiree Holman. It's difficult to say what emerging is today. It's even more challenging to qualify Bay Area art. And according to Apsara de Quinzio and Allison Gass, the two curators that picked this year's SICO Award winners, both of those are somewhat fluid. Auerbach is from the Bay Area, but she lives in New York now. Paglin is emerging, but he's also very well known in certain circles. So what is Sika about, and what does it ultimately represent? My name is Tani Katenjian. This is Sight Unseen, a weekly program that speaks with artists of all different mediums to uncover the unseen aspects of their work and exploring the ways in which they see the world. In this interview, I speak to the curators of San Francisco MoMA's Sika Awards, Apsara De Quinzio and Allison Gass, speaking about Bay Area art, the Mission School, and how it is to co-curate. The first voice you hear is Apsara's, and the second is Allison's. So stay tuned for that and more on this week's Sight Unseen. The Sika Award is essentially the Bay Area's most prestigious award. Um, it's given every two years to local artists, and it's the exhibition is a culmination of a very long process that lasts about a year and a half. Um, and that entails Allie and I, the curators, um, engaging with our patron group, the Sika group, and then um, asking them to submit nominations. And then, you know, we go through this long process of reviewing submissions, um, people who want to be considered for the award, and then we narrow it down to 30 people who we do studio visits with. And then um, finally, there's four award winners. So we hope that it's... Um, you know, a launching pad for their careers, and we hope that it brings a much larger audience to their work. The, the people we're willing to consider for Sika are artists who have never shown in an institution at this scale. They can have had some recognition, and usually they have some museum recognition, but rarely or never at a museum that gets this kind of international visitorship, this number of visitors. So this is a really big jump in platform for them in terms of having their work shared. So it's really exciting. Plus we do the catalog where they get, um, we write little essays about them, which is actually really nice to have for them to have someone interpret their work. Yeah. Now, someone uh, mentioned to me, uh, an artist, another artist mentioned to me that that uh, he believed that the Sika Award isn't necessarily for emerging artists, that, that a lot of the people that are chosen kind of have established themselves to a certain extent. Um, to your point, they may not have established themselves in an art institution, mm-hmm. but they're already nationally or, you know, in, in certain cases, internationally known. Mm-hmm. So where does that line get crossed? Yeah. Well, um, it's sort of up to us to, to determine that line. Um, you know, we're looking for uh, artists who are at an early stage in their career and who have not yet received substantial recognition by a major institution. Um, so it's sort of up to us to interpret how they fit that criteria. 
I would just add that I think emerging artists can really be a relative term in some ways, that artists who've had a lot of recognition in the Bay Area maybe aren't well known outside of the Bay Area. And in part, that's what we try to do with Sika. We do get some more national and, and maybe even international attention to this show. So in some ways, it can even be a jump up for artists who are really well known here, but have never been, been given a platform like this. And, and that can that can work the other way too. There are some artists um, who are probably more well known outside of the Bay Area um, than are known inside the Bay Area. So we're we're keeping that in mind too. So so we're in the first um, gallery of this show. Um, what what do we see around us? This is Talba Auerbach's gallery. Um, in this installation, we've been able to give each artist their own gallery within the museum, which makes for four really nice sort of solo shows that then come together as you move through to create a lot of different dialogues. So Tauba is the youngest artist in the show. She's a Bay Area native, grew up here, just sort of comes out of a mission school aesthetic. She worked as a sign painter. She's been traditionally very interested in systems of information and language. A lot of the, her earlier work that people may have seen at the Jack Hanley Gallery where she's represented had to do with playing with language. And we can start talking about these works over here, actually. In, in Talbot's installation in, within the Sika show, these are two of her oldest works. Um, they're both called The Whole Alphabet from the Center Out, Digital 5 and Digital 6. And what they are are works on paper where she's rendered the entire English alphabet literally from the inside out in the language of a digital clock. So what you see when you look at the piece is a really abstracted line patterning of sorts. And what you're looking at is that she's actually made an A in the language of a digital clock, that sort of bare bones linear system. And then the next one becomes a lowercase b, and then you see a c. So as you start to break down what you're looking at, you understand that these are signs that we're really familiar with in our everyday lives, but collapsed into this sort of pattern of working from the inside out and using this line system, it's become something illegible and something that has taken that sign system to a totally different level, one that's purely abstracted. You know, I, I don't know if this is actually so, but the Toyota logo mm -hmm. spells out Toyota in, in lines. It does? Yeah, it spells out Toyota, and it reminds me a little bit of, of mm -hmm. I mean, you can't tell that, no. but it, it, it just, mm -hmm. it spells it out, and it, it's so abstracted. Tauba's really interested in these sort of linguistic systems, such as the alphabet. She's also done um, drawings based on, um, you know, Morse code and um, the Ugaritic alphabet. So she's really looking at all different types of linguistic systems um, that we use to communicate with one another. So she's looking at that system, that sort of logically constructed system, and then looking at how she can play with it, how she can manipulate it, how she can deconstruct it a little bit. And so that when you see in these drawings what you're looking at when you shift from the color drawing to the black and white drawing is this increasingly abstract and illegible state. So in the drawing here on the left, it 
actually collapses into pure pattern. There is no way that you can read that drawing as being a representation of the alphabet. So she's, she's really playing with this and, and so, sort of investigating this space of uncertainty. She's really sort of positing the space of uncertainty as a, as a productive space. You mentioned the mission school. And I'm going to say something that may, you may not like very much. But, um, you know, I, I, the problem I have with the mission school is that I think that there are some great concepts that are very slop, sloppily executed. I don't think that's true with Talba's work at all. But I do think that's true about the mission school to a certain extent. And I, I'm not... This is not just my own, uh-huh. um, my own idea. I think that that is one of the problems of the San Francisco young San Francisco art scene. So I'd like to, that to be addressed by you. Sure. Well, first of all, I want to clarify that I don't think that Tauba fits in in any way into the mission school or would categorize herself as that. I also think that, you know, I don't want to pick apart what the mission school is or isn't, but what I do want to say is that San Francisco maybe has been known by that very significantly for a little while and that that's really changing. I think that there are so many artists, young artists, older artists working in the Bay Area who are involved in a whole set of different kinds of artistic approaches and productions and in some ways, our job as curators and our job as curators of a, of a Bay Area-focused show is to get away from the idea that there's one kind of art making being produced in the Bay Area and to put together a show that reminds everybody who walks through that these artists are working around the same themes and in similar language to interesting contemporary artists from all over the world. And I think that that's very much what you see when you come through this show, not at all something that feels uniquely San Francisco-like or Bay Area-like, which, which is, in in many ways what the mission school has been. So I think Tauba may come out of some of that and, and aesthetically and, um, and approach-wise maybe was engaged in that in her early career but has moved on to something that's really different in a lot of ways. She, she's also moved on, uh, geographically speaking, she lives in New York now. It doesn't sadden me, but I think that that's something that happens here is that in San Francisco and the beauty of San Francisco, the comfort and ease of living here, although it's expensive, allows for lots of creativity, but you can only reach a certain point here. Um, and you find that you have to move somewhere like L.A. or New York. I mean, do you, do, you think that's, do you think that's true? Do you think that's not true? I don't think that you have to leave out of necessity. I think that people choose to leave, perhaps, um, to experience new places. Um, Tauba just moved to New York, and she's lived here her entire life. You know, she's 27 or 28, and it, it makes a lot of sense that a young artist might want to move somewhere else like L.A. and New York to get more experience in these sort of more cosmopolitan, I guess, cities, much larger cities. Um, So I think it makes a lot of sense for certain artists to want to leave. You know, they shouldn't feel like they have to leave in order to succeed by any means, though. And the other thing is that, you know, what you mentioned about Sika being kind of representative, not so much of the Bay Area, although these are Bay Area artists, but that they are kind of, you know, they they are in, t- in tune with artists from all over the country and all over the world, mm-hmm. which is an interesting 
not contradiction, but you know, maybe some people would come to the Sika show to see what's happening in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. But is that not so, or is that so? I think this this is what's happening in the Bay Area, or it's or it's our take on what we feel is some of the strongest work being made in the Bay Area right now. I don't think that should mean that what you see here is something that can be reduced to a Bay Area aesthetic or or a set of Bay Area interests. I think, if anything, what you should see is a really extraordinary group of artists making really great art. They all live in the Bay Area, which should remind us that really great art is being made in the Bay Area. We don't want to ghettoize it in any way and say, oh, this work is great in the Bay Area, but if you put it in New York, it wouldn't be great. I don't feel that way at all, and I don't think any great artists in San Francisco would want to have their work be seen that way. I think what's important is for us to to remember that institutions like SFMOMA are committed to showing work from around the world, but it's also really important for us to look around our neighborhood, look around our community, and remember that that kind of work is being made right here too. And that's part of our responsibility as, as an institution to its hometown, I think. So let's, let's go on to the next, the next gallery. So Trevor Paglin has shown, I think I saw some of his photographs at Yerba Buena mm-hmm. Center for the Arts. Um, he is still in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he's a photographer, obviously. Mm-hmm. Let's take La Crosse Onyx 5 near Cepheus. Mm-hmm. So what you're looking at here is a photograph that um, Trevor Paglin has taken with um, very high-powered lenses, lenses that astronomers would use in order to look at the stars, look at the night sky. He has a sort of high-tech system whereby he has these lenses that are attached to his camera, which are also attached to a GPS tracking device, which is attached to a computer program, essentially, that is locating these satellites um, in the night sky. So he's been working with amateur astronomers for many years in order to identify the the paths that these very specific um, reconnaissance satellites, many of which are secret, to be able to identify their paths in the night sky. So um, what we're looking at here is a photograph, a black and white photograph, because it's um, rendered in the negative of a satellite. And so you see a very faint line, um, which is a trace of the the route that the satellite has taken. Um, You also see the sort of... um, the galaxy um, in negative of the night sky. And then you see some other traces um, that are uh, commercial airplanes who have also left their mark on the night sky. So this is part of a a group of photographs that he refers to as the other night sky. So it's showing you essentially what you can't see in the night sky with your naked eye. Um, It's showing you all of those secret uh, satellites that are constantly orbiting the earth at any given point. I really like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's very clever conceptually. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's great. I mean, the medium of photography is such an interesting thing about seeing, obviously. Mm-hmm. So he's really playing with, you know, yeah. what we see, what we observe. Absolutely. What would you say about this? Well, I would just say that, I mean, there are so many things happening in Trevor's 
gallery and in his practice and in his life, he's, he's much more than a photographer. Um, he's an academic, he's a writer, he just completed his PhD in geography at Berkeley, and he's been studying secret government concepts and, and mapping for a long time. And so what you're seeing here is his ability to use photography to show us things, as Apsara said, that we can't see with our naked eye. And that's something that comes up in, as a theme in, in the show in general, I think. Um, and it's super interesting to think about photography as something that we think of as just giving us the world as we see it. We look through a lens and we can capture what we're seeing. But in this practice, we're seeing something much different from what we see when we just look at the world. These are um, photographs that in certain instances collapse onto pure abstract patterns or a an abstract image. So you have the figurative and um, the abstract in uh, in dialogue in these works, just as you do in Talba's drawings and paintings. But here it's, it's in the photographic medium. So let's move on to, the, to gallery numero tres. <laughs> so we have um, Jordan Cantor's work, who was just here visiting. <laughs> With, um, with possibly a friend or a partner. And um, I've, I've, I've seen that, that Johnny Cash piece uh, before. But um, yeah, let's, let's talk about the paintings because I think that, that, that would be a good way to go. We've, gone, we've had drawings, we've had photography. Now this is, we've got several mediums going on. But yeah, let's go for paintings. Well, Jordan Cantor is um, an artist who is very engaged with um, the subject of representation and how um, different subjects are treated um, in different formats, whether it be in photography, um, whether it be on television, whether it be on the internet, whether it be in painting. So he's, he's looking at how images um, sort of culturally and historically circulate throughout our lives. So that's really the, the subject of all of these paintings. Um, and so what happens to the image as it um, moves throughout all of these different media. So in this painting, this is Untitled Surgery from 2008, um, you know, it's the source of this image is taken from a World War II field surgery um, that he found in a book. And um, he then Xeroxed that photograph and then created a painting of the Xerox. So he's including the, the levels of the stages of remove of the image from its original source. So there was originally um, a photographer who was there on site taking a photograph of this happening, which then gets reproduced in a book which then gets Xeroxed, which then gets turned into a painting. So he's showing you all of these different stages, and he's doing this by including the sort of traces um, of these different sites. So you see the spine of the book left in the center of the painting, which indicates, which acts as a sign to indicate that this was actually taken from a Xerox because you see the crease that you would have seen in this flattened Xeroxed image. You know, we came in here saying, let's talk about painting. We haven't talked about it yet. And Jordan is a painter, but he's a painter who's really engaged 
in all of these other kinds of production. He's a painter who's really engaged with photography and with anything that's, that can be mechanically reproduced because that's the subject of his paintings is rarely the composition that you see on the surface of them. It's rarely any kind of discernible narrative. Rather, he's just taking these images and the subject becomes their structure, as Absara said, as they, as they move through different forms as they get reproduced the subject becomes what they look like and how the image does or doesn't change as it moves through all these different stages. So we're in a gallery filled with paintings, but a gallery that's really as much about photography as it is about painting in, in an important way. As much about reproduction yeah. as it is about, yeah, as about painting as well. And, and, and as much about the sort of dispersion and circulation of information that is presented in image form that happens throughout history and culture. Um, so it's not just about the subject itself, but it's about all these different routes that the subject travels in, um, in these different formats. All right, well, let's, I guess we'll go on to the final, okay, final the room, room then. Yeah. Yeah. So Desiree Holman is, is the one artist in this show that I, had, I hadn't heard of um, before Sika. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you guys discover her? Well, she was, again, one of these artists that we did a studio visit with. Um, she, was, she had a gallery a show at the Silverman Gallery in 2007, which we actually saw prior to doing the Sika Studio visit with her. And in that exhibition, this work was actually there. Um, so we saw this work and were familiar with her work before we did the studio visit with her. Um, but she is a fantastic artist who is also exploring um, this subject of representation. However, she's doing it via um, sort of the media through TV. So her subject that he, she has selected for this project specifically is um, the two television sitcoms, um, Roseanne and The Cosby Show. So she's effectively created these masks um, that are based on characters within Roseanne and The Cosby Show. And then she's engaged her friends and family to enact in this sort of fantastical um, reconstruction of those sort of tableaus. And she's done that with this three-channel um, video uh, installation. On one channel, on the left side, you would see uh, the stage set that she's created that represents um, Roseanne. And then on the right side, you would see the Huxtables and the Cosby Show. And so then as these sort of narratives progress, you see, um, you know, Theo walk in and, and throw a, a basketball across the room. Um, he breaks a lamp, it crashes to the floor. Roseanne comes home and lies on her couch, is tired. Um, she has all of her kids surrounding her. And then as it progresses, um, they sort of merge into this center channel where this sort of fantastical dance scene um, occurs. So essentially these two separate families um, become hybridized in this digital space. Um, and in that sort of blackless, groundless space, um, the characters are surrounded with this green 
glow, this almost, almost like a halo that surrounds their bodies. And she refers to this as um, digital ectoplasmic cocoons in this very sort of imaginative term that she's, she's coined for it. Um, but it really sort of underscores that this is a fantastic, fantastical virtual space um, that these characters are inhabiting. And that sort of speaks to this um, fantastical space that... Um, develops in time and in our minds um, through our interaction with these these different TV shows. We've taken on these families, the Huxtables and Roseanne's family, as our own family. Right. Mm-hmm. So she is she's kind of calling us out on that. For sure. She's absolutely playing with sort of our own cultural identity and forcing us to think about how we construct our understandings of our, both ourselves and the world. I think that, you know, people, Americans of my generation really grew up watching the Huxtables and, and maybe watching Roseanne as well. And that gave us different senses of what a family is, but also in interesting ways, sort of how race and class work in the United States. That these are two shows that in conjoining them, Desiree is really questioning or asking us to think about the way we envision and understand very broad stereotypes of race and class. You know, the Cosby show was, a lot was written about it when it first came out because it's a show about a wealthy African-American family. Roseanne is a show about a blue collar working class white family. And in putting those two together, Desiree's kind of, each of them maybe upends really deep-seated assumptions about how the world works in the United States. And putting them together, Desiree's kind of questioning that and asking us to question that. Also asking us to realize, for those of us who do have this reference, who did grow up with these works, you realize how familiar this stuff is. That people come in, these masks look a great deal like the characters, but also they were clearly handmade and intentionally sort of almost creepy in the sense that they they look like distorted versions of those characters. So you come in and you realize this is a huge shared reference that we all know and we all completely understanding it, it asks us to think a lot about the time we spend in our own fantasy world just as these characters then move into a fantasy world of their own. Let's just move to the first gallery so that um, the people that are in here can can listen to this as it should be listened to. And, um, and I'll ask my final question, which is if one were to ask, or if I were to ask, uh, if there is a consistent theme throughout the show, which I'm sure you've been asked many times, mm-hmm. um, what, what, what would that theme be? Or what would those, those themes be? Well, as we said, the premise of Sika is actually to make an exhibition that doesn't have a theme, to make an exhibition whose theme is just showing you the best of the Bay Area right now. Setting that aside, and that's the way we selected these artists, absolutely, really based on the ones we felt merited the award. Putting that to the side, we ended up with a show that is extraordinarily rich in terms of through lines and cohesive themes. One that after we sort of realized that, after we picked the artists, we did work with them a little bit in terms of the work we would actually put in the show to kind of highlight some of those connections. Certainly this play between the handmade and the reproducible or the digital or or the handmade and technology is something that comes up in every one of these artists' works. Another theme is certainly this idea of legibility and illegibility, things that can't be seen that are then made visible or things that can't be known that are then made knowable, that sort of thing. Um, do you want to add? And 
and then really each artist is exploring different aspects of, of representation within their own unique way. They're essentially picking a subject like uh, you know, cultural stereotypes or language or the covert activities of the U.S. military, or photography and image circulation. And then they're working to pull that apart or pry that apart and deconstruct it a little bit to question what's really going on in, in this work, what's going on within our world, and how is our sort of material environment changing throughout that process. You must have forged an interesting relationship working together on, on this. Did you, did, you, um, did you find very similar ways of seeing, very different ways of seeing? And how was it to co-curate? Well, Apsara and I work very closely together in general, although very, never really on a project together. We just spend our days sitting next to each other. <laughs> um, and I think both of us went into this not fully knowing what it would be like. I think what was pretty amazing during the, sl- the review process of reviewing artists was that it was pretty unanimous about who we wanted to give, who, at least who we wanted to make the finalists. Um, and then it was pretty darn close <laughs> in terms of who we wanted to give the award to. In some ways, we would play devil's advocate a little bit. I think we, we both knew exactly who we wanted, but we would sort of throw a name in, and the other one would then say, well, no, defend it. And then you sort of have to defend it in a way that when you're curating by yourself, maybe you don't have to do. So in the end, I think, if anything, co-curating makes you feel even more confident about your decision and about your show because you've got your ideas, but then the ideas of this other person um, coming together to make it even even stronger or questioning you if you're stretching a little bit or things like that. So I think co-curating is, is a really fascinating way to approach if you can reach a good working mm-hmm. environment, which we did. <laughs> Those were the words of Apsara De Quinzio and Alison Gass, curators of the Sika Awards, an award given out every two years to four emerging Bay Area artists. To learn more about the show, please visit sfmoma.org. My name is Sonny Katanji, and this is Sight Unseen, shedding light on the creative world through candid conversations with the artists of our time. Next week on the show, the voice of several young filmmakers whose films were chosen as part of the Human Rights Watch International Film Festival, Youth Producing Change. You're listening to Resonance, 104.4 FM, the UK's first radio art station. 